chapter 11, just the uh, first six verses this morning, and then hope to explain them to you. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. You know, one of the privileges of being a pastor is that often people invite you in and give you access to parts of their lives that no one else or very few people ever have access. And it's a privilege. And often people will come in and they will uh, begin with some confessing of where God has them. They want to unburden uh, themselves. But as I look back over the 26 years of being a pastor, something has never happened in those 26 years. And nobody has a set appointment, come into my office and sat down and said, you know, I struggle with the sin of greed in 26 years. It's curious because we all know that greed is a problem. But for whatever reason, and some of it is just simply our difference of opinion on what greed is. You see, there's a, a liberal version of greed and there's a conservative version of greed. I don't mean politically, I just mean in the way in which you see the world. You know, many conservatives look at liberals and they say, well, you're, you're generous, but you're only generous with my money. You're not generous with your own. And I, I think there's an interesting debate going on right now. I don't know if you have... I've been keeping up with it, but the richest man in America, according to Forbes, uh, Bill Gates and Elizabeth Warren are having a a little uh, spat. And uh, Elizabeth Warren has proposed a Medicaid for all, kind of a universal health care, Medicare, universal health care for everyone. And it's going to cost a few trillion dollars. And the way she's decided to pay for it is tax the top 1%. And up till that point, A lot of people were in support until they found out Bill Gates would go from, and this is his reporting, I paid $40 million in taxes last year, the most in America, according to him. Um, But under her plan, it would be well over 100, if not closer to $200 million a year. And he said, if you do that, then I won't be able to innovate. And... I just think it's always interesting that we tend to think the other side has a problem with greed, not us. Because there's a conservative version, too. Uh, That is, liberals look at conservatives and say, you you just spend your money on yourself. You never spend it on anybody else. You don't care about the poor. Um, The truth is, we, we may disagree about how greed works, 
But we all agree it's a problem. I don't know anyone who doesn't say it's a problem. And, and the overspent Americans, a little book by uh, Juliet's course, she makes this observation. Uh, two-thirds of the people who make over $145,000 a year say they can't afford what they need. Did you get that? Well, how can that be true? What can be true is we measure our wealth by comparison with our friends. That is, if you uh, make four figures, you compare yourself to your friends who make five figures. And if you make five figures, you compare yourself to your friends who make six figures. And if you make six figures, you compare yourself to your friends who make seven figures. And on and on it goes until you finally you're comparing yourself to Bill Gates. What we fail to do is compare ourselves to the world. Half of the world lives off of less than $3 a day. Now think about that. You'd say, well, there's no way they could live in America. You're probably right. It'd be very difficult to live in the United States on $3 a day. But half the world does. So it's hard to call us poor or we can't afford what we need when we're living on way more. Greed, therefore, is everybody's problem. That's really the point, is it's not just the wealthy, it's not just the poor or the middle class, it's everybody's problem. The first thing our text shows us this morning is that wealth is like bread. In fact, the way I phrased it was, wealth is bread. Look at the imperatives of verses 1 and 2. There's only two. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, and give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know uh, not what disaster may happen on earth. All the commentaries, not, not one says anything different than what I'm about to tell you. That doesn't necessarily make it true, it just means that they're unified. Commentators believe that he is talking about our money, specifically about cultivating a generous lifestyle. And everyone is to live that way, from billionaires to babysitters. So sometimes children think that I'll be generous when I'm an adult and I'm making money. But everyone is to be generous. And I'll explain why in a moment. But for a moment, the first point he's trying to make is that all of us, uh, from the poorest to the richest are to live lives of generosity rather than hoarding our wealth. Because the verb that he's using here, the imperative, is to cast or to give. Okay, naturally in a church, you ask, how much? How much is? Well, the Old Testament has one standard, given. The Old Testament talks about the tithe. It literally means a tenth. And it was off the top, that is, if you were a, uh, an agrarian, that is, you were a farmer or you raised animals, uh, when harvest came or when all of the uh, uh, animals had a bread, uh, you would give a tenth, the first tenth of that crop or flock uh, uh, to uh, what was called the storehouse or another word meaning temple, uh, another way of saying giving it to the Lord. The Old Testament also talked about above the tenth, and everybody 
uh, uh, was required to do so, no matter what the source of your income was, was also to participate in annual offerings. And that was significant. A number of times, uh, uh, sometimes they were called alms, uh, you would give to the poor. Sometimes they were uh, called goodwill or free will offerings, and there were many of those, all of them connecting to festivals that people would be drawn to the temple or to the synagogues for, and they would make an offering for needs, uh, both inside and outside the people of God. Well, Jesus comes along and a lot of people say, well, (laughs) Jesus obliterated all that. He really didn't mean for us uh, to do that. Not a big deal. The problem is, is that when Jesus does his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says twice, when you give, not if you give, but when you give. And then later he says in Matthew 6, when you tithe. See, he's affirming the giving practices of the Old Testament into the New. I'm not saying or setting a legalized standard for your giving, but he didn't obliterate them. He didn't, he didn't uh, replace them. He affirmed them uh, uh, to the people of God. And, and, and not only uh, does the Bible talk about our money in the way of the living generous lifestyles, it even talks about our attitude as we give. The Lord loves what? A cheerful giver, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 7. And so a generous life is marked by cheerfulness and not by duty or begrudging. Most Americans, as I told you, don't believe that Jesus, that that he affirmed it. And therefore, I can give whatever I want if I want to give at all. I think it misses the whole point, the amount. Because I think he's setting a much higher standard than the Old Testament tenth. If Jesus is the standard, which he is, then his standard isn't some portion. It's the whole thing. I surrender all. So when we give on Sunday morning or you write your check or however you give, it represents the whole, not a portion. That is, I'm not giving my tenth so I can spend 90%. I give 10% so the Lord knows he has access to the other 90 as well. That's his point. Because he gave 100% of himself. C.S. Lewis, the story is told that when he made his millions, people don't know that about C.S. Lewis, but by toward the end of his life, all of the books had become po- popularized again for the first time. They weren't as popular when they were written, but became popular before his death. And uh, they, the publishers had to pay millions of dollars. He lived on 10% and gave 90% away. One of the great heroes of the church, a guy named John Wesley, made at his time, the equivalent of millions uh, was not that much, but it was in today's standard. Uh, he died with just a few pennies in his pocket because he had given it all away. Now, I'm going to upset uh, a few heirs here if you are one of those. If we live this way, there will be less to leave our children. If we live generous lifestyles, where God has access to not just the 10% that we give or whatever percentage it is, but all of it, it means there will be less to give our children. Well, 
hopefully you can get over that point to hear this. It is reported by the IRS, at least that's what I hear, that the American Christians give uh, right at 3%. Now that's three times better than those that aren't. I have no idea how they determine that. But the average American gives about 1% of his giving, uh, of his income. That IRS can check because they see your charitable give, our charitable giving. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says about that. He says, if the clouds, this is verse 3, are full of rain and they empty themselves on the earth, and if trees fall to the ground to the north in the place where the tree falls, there will lie. This is the, the preacher's way of saying, even the clouds get full and drop it. Even the storehouse of the clouds and the storehouse of the forest drop their resources for everyone to enjoy and to benefit and flourish. So it's kind of, verse 3 is kind of a rebuke uh, to human beings who are struggling with the disease of greed. That is, is that if we look out at nature and we can see even nature is designed with this principle of generosity, how can we not be? And so there's almost a warning here for hoarding, that is, holding things for ourselves, that it literally can be hazardous, not just to the health of others because we're withholding the ability to help them flourish, but also ourselves. We are to seek the flourishing of others. And one of the ways that we can do that is through our sharing of resources But we're not only commanded to give generously, but also diversely. That's why he says in verse 2, give a portion to seven or to uh, even to eight. To diversify the giving, he's talking about that the kingdom of God has many endeavors, many uh, places that he's moving around the world that are in need. And so... When he talks about this, some endeavors will flourish more quickly than others. That's why he he begins and talks about in the morning you sow your seed and in the evening we hold, this is verse 6, not your hand for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether uh, both alike will be good. We don't know. We're not responsible for the growth. That's the Lord's work. We're responsible to invest. We're responsible to give. And trust the Lord who causes all the growth. And it doesn't mean we don't evaluate, we don't uh, uh, want to see at some point, but use this as a cautionary tale. There's a, a story about a, young, a man named, he's not young, Luke uh, Short. And uh, uh, Luke Short becomes a Christian late in life. And uh, he comes to Christ by reading a sermon by John Flavel. Uh, John Flavel preaches a sermon 85 years before Luke Short reads it. So huge distance between the investment and the return by our, deter- our estimation. There's no way John Flavel, he was dead by the time that Luke Short had read it. And so it, he, knew, he didn't know exactly who and what would be flourishing from that sermon. But this is what his tombstone reads. Here lies a babe in grace, age three years, who died according to nature at age 106. Great story. We have no idea 
We cast our bread upon the water, and it returns. And it may be in our lifetime. It may not be in our lifetime. I mean, EP is a perfect example of that. People who invested back in 64 and 65 and 66 were bearing fruit now. And so many of those stories, because you are those stories. You are the Luke Shorts. EP, EP talks about uh, giving you the opportunity through tithes and offerings. We take up a tithe every Sunday, and you can do it in so many ways. We live in the 21st century, and so it, it, it makes it easier for many of you. Uh, uh, I have a, a, a couple of children who don't even know what a checkbook is. They don't pay anything that way. And so the thought of bringing that is just so foreign to them. Uh, even though they saw mom and dad do it their whole lives um, because nobody else requires it in their life. It's all done by credit card or by computer exchange. And so we make that possible for you to do just through our app or website. But we also give you tremendous opportunities for offerings. I love this about EP. Very first time uh, I came uh, to EP. EP was taking an offering uh, for a partnership in uh, Romania, this series of churches that we've been having relationships for 20 years before. And that's a, a tremendous thing, a need somewhere. We see it and beyond our ties, our, our giving doesn't hurt because of it. Uh, people are giving the opportunity. Not everybody participates, but there is offering. We're going to do that a little later in the service with a CCO, which is a coalition of Christian outreach, which is a college ministry in our community uh, that we partner with, particularly among college students here, but specifically at Anne Arundel Community College, where nobody was ministering. We were able to get uh, one and then now two staff, uh, Stephen uh, Manyara and uh, Frankie Frank, uh, to minister there, and that ministry has exploded. And because they have a need, we partner and support that need as a church through our missions committee, but they have greater needs than that. They have to raise most of their support, and so we're going to give you an opportunity to participate later in the service. But we do so many of that. Our mercy offering is that, where we're able to minister inside and outside our church. But let's turn to how the church deals specifically with our money. We're never really ready, are we, to cast our bread. Again, the, the tax returns show the richer we are, the less of percentage we give. This shows that wealth can have a strangling effect on the soul. A charity starts at home, we hear in the church. The problem is that's a euphemism. It's a euphemism uh, for hoarding. Luke 12 gives us the parable of the rich fool. Do you remember what he did with all of his wealth? He built more barns to store it. Now contrast him with the uh, widow who took the last two copper coins she had and she gave them away. Many give out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. 50% of the self-defined Christians uh, was reported by Christianity Today gave nothing last year to the church. In many cases, God's kingdom work is being funded uh, uh, by the poor, the widows, and teens. This is not about shame. It really isn't. I hope you don't feel shame. Instead, I hope you understand the disease of greed comes inside the church too. 
not just outside the church. My new best friend, uh, Dave Ramsey, says it this way. We spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. He says we, we, we spend truckloads of money on beauty and fashion and truckloads on elite education, sports, and second homes. Why? You ever ask why? Don't we deserve it? Don't our kids deserve better than we did? Having wealth is not the issue. Greed is. Hoarding the wealth is the issue. How can you safeguard against that? Let me give you Tim Keller's algorithm. I think is very helpful here. He says, give generously toward the top of your income bracket and live toward the bottom of your income bracket. Give toward the top and live toward the bottom of your same income bracket, whatever that might be. Notice his algorithm doesn't ask you to leave your income bracket. You're not more godly if you make less. And you're not blessed if you have more. God has people in every income bracket in the world. This is the way John Piper puts it. He says, money can be hazardous, so I want you to encourage you to put limits on how much you keep for yourself. Not limits on how much you make, but on how much you keep. Don't you see, even babysitters and lawn mowers can do this, not just billionaires. It's not amount you give, it's the heart of the giver. Do you all remember the crash of 2008? We didn't get experience it until really 2009, 2010 here. But giving to churches and to charities really went down in America during that crash. And we felt it ourselves. But our mercy fund was never healthier. We gave so much away to people in need, both inside and outside our church. God was so faithful through your giving in a difficult time that could have been horrors for families who went without. Christian historian Rodney Stark, he wrote wrote a book on... Why Christianity uh, exploded in the first three centuries. And he came to this conclusion. He said Christians were different from the culture in two big ways. The first way the culture was, the church was different was that we were conservative with our bodies. Everywhere in the Roman Empire, they, they were sleeping with other people, multiple uh, uh, spouses or at least uh, mistresses and and uh, things of, of, of that nature. But the church, and that's why you see so many scriptures and so much of Paul uh, talking about uh, the, the, the marriage and the life in the home and purity. We, we can get the impression that Paul is a prude. He's a Puritan before there were Puritans. And really, Paul's not harping on purity. He's harping on being different. That the gospel really does change everything in this world that believes it. And one of the ways it changes in the way in which we, we view the marriage and life that way. The other way is that we became, the church, very liberal with our wealth. And as a result, the church was unexplainable to the world. And so the world wanted to know, your God must be very different. He changes your life this way. Tell us about him. And this is the the last thought here. 
is where do you get the power for that? Where do you get a power to live generously and cheerfully as you give? Well, he started it out and he told us, cast your bread on the waters. Jesus is the one in the New Testament that says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the one who gives us and is the source of our generosity because he is the widow who gave his all. He's the one who left his riches and came down here and literally liquidated himself and his wealth. So much so that Paul will say it this way, he who was rich became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich ourselves. Having received so much from him, how can we possibly withhold from him such a small thing as our money? Let's pray.